Perhaps what we could do then is to just reflect on um, the, the way we've been presenting this son practice over the last days and try to pull some of the different elements together, particularly in the light of how this practice might then be integrated into our lives um, outside the retreat. I think it's fair to say that, as with many forms of meditation, there is both a dynamic and a passive element uh, that we can identify. Um, Traditionally, this is often thought of as vipassana, which means insight, samatha, which means uh, quietness or calm. And the Buddha saw meditation really as a process of trying to integrate and, and balance these two dimensions. We've given a lot of attention to this dynamic aspect, which is the vipassana aspect, uh, namely the inquiry into what is this. Uh, this has got a certain kind of charge to it, if you wish. Um, there's a certain urgency, perhaps. At least that's the way it's presented traditionally. And I think, for myself, uh, a very central part of what this exercise is about. We are seeking to uh, focus our energies into this singular question of our own lives. But at the same time, we're doing this in the context of a retreat. We're spending time in silence. We're spending time sitting still. Um, We're contextualizing this inquiry into a contemplative space. And that, I think, is what differentiates it from, for example, what you might um, find in certain forms of existentialist uh, philosophy where the same kinds of questions are pursued but usually in the context of um, a cafe on the left bank of the Seine with a cup of strong coffee in one hand and a gauloise drooping from your lower lip and intense conversations with equally energized people. So... The questioning itself, I don't think, is peculiar to Zen Buddhism or to Buddhism. It's basically the core question of what it means to exist, to be. But the framework within which we uh, explore these questions is of a silent, contemplative practice. And as we've already said, it's very useful, I feel, to maybe spend a fair bit of time just getting into a more quiet, into a more uh, explicitly embodied awareness, whether that's through the breath or through simply being uh, sitting in just a kind of open uh, state of mind which becomes quieter and quieter and then introducing uh, this question. And probably many of us have spent the last days, trying to somehow find an equilibrium between the stillness on the one hand and the uh, the dynamism or the energy of the inquiry 
on the other. And in my own experience, this practice somehow comes into its own when these two dimensions achieve moments of integration. So I can ask this question, but in a very in intense way, but also in a way that is very still and embodied and centered and not prone to rushing into streams of ideas and thoughts and theories and so on. So we try to make this question come alive in a sensation of perplexity, as the texts uh, tell us, um, that is somehow beyond the um, uh, intellectual posing of the words of the question itself. In fact, the words can disappear once we enter into that felt sense of inquiry. But I think we can also benefit from uh, teasing out um, more of this contemplative uh, frame within which this inquiry takes place. And today I'd like to explore a couple of uh, aspects of this. Yesterday, no not yesterday, the day before yesterday I spoke of not knowing, which again is, a, is, 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 the, is the flip side of what is this. This not knowing, this I don't know, is also, in a sense, a kind of coming to rest, uh, coming to dwell in a still openness to the fact that we don't really know who we are or what is going on. It's also a restful space. But within that not knowing, I think there are other facets that are helpful to attend to. And one of these is um, the quality of waiting. And I would contrast this to another quality that's similar in some respects, but also crucially rather different, and that is the quality of expecting or expectation. In Old English, this distinction was, the, the connection between these two words I think was, was more explicit. We talked of waiting and awaiting. We don't really use that word anymore. In German, you still have it. You have warten und erwarten, to wait and to expect. In English, you don't think those two words, waiting, expecting, are linked. In German, it's very obvious. And so expecting is a kind of waiting, except it is um, a waiting for something that you already have a preconceived idea about. And therein lies the problem. Because as soon as we've picked up a book on Zen Buddhism and we've read about people having Satori experiences and Kensho's and breakthroughs and enlightenments and all of this stuff, that unfortunately plants seeds in our mind of the order, oh gosh, that's probably going to happen to me too. And we conjure up a picture 
based really on what we've read secondhand of what it is that um, this practice will lead us to. Now, in some ways, it's impossible to engage fully in any human activity without some sense that it's worthwhile and it's going to get us somewhere, that it's going to lead us to some insight or some understanding or some accomplishment or wherever it might be. That's just, I think, the structure of human experience. And we wouldn't have come on this retreat unless we had had some sort of sense that it was going to be worth our while. And if we unpack each of us what we might have meant by that, why would it be worth your while? If a friend asks you, why are you going on this retreat? Presumably, you can rationally justify your actions. <laughs> you can say, I'm going on this retreat because... And whatever follows the because is your idea of what it is that you hope or expect to happen while you're here. So in other words, it's an entirely natural thing. It's not a problem per se, but it becomes problematic when it somehow, the expectation or the idea, the picture of whatever it is we're looking for, overrides or interrupts with this um, still posing of a question in a state of unknowing in which we just are present to whatever the situation might throw up. And it leads to what might sound like a rather um, uncomfortable recognition, namely that there are no guarantees that we can just because you've sat X number of hours on a cushion does not entitle you to some kind of um, you know, insight. Uh, and the corollary of that is that we have to be open to the fact that we may not achieve some preconceived idea of what the goal of the practice was. We have to somehow let go of all such expectations. And again, that's easier said than done. You may have had moments in your meditation where you've got very still, got very clear, everything seems to be going really well, whatever that means. And then a little voice pipes up and says, hey, maybe I'm on the edge of this experience now. Maybe something really remarkable is about to happen and you start getting really rather excited about this and the consequence very often is that that has the effect of basically um, diffusing the whole thing and you lapse back into what are often rather repetitive and you know not terribly interesting thoughts and so on so we probably know that um, as an experience so what can you do about it? Well, one thing I feel is that we can consciously valorize um, the experience of just waiting. Waiting without expecting. And to try to differentiate experientially between the two. I think over time <coughs> this begins to dawn on us anyway. Um, 
there's a certain point in any form of meditative practice where the practice itself becomes self-validating. In other words, we do it not because of some hypothetical goal we might reach, but we do it because doing it is enough in itself. That just to sit, to be focused, to inquire, to be mindful, is already enough. We don't need to add anything else onto it. Uh, Kuzan Sunim used to describe this in a traditional Korean metaphor. He called it adding legs to the snake. We don't need to put legs on the snake. The snake can get around perfectly well by itself. So waiting is at some level, I think, a deep form of acceptance of the moment as such. The moment we're sitting, we're questioning, we're asking, you know, what is this? But the mind gets to a point where it just gives up uh, any interest in getting an answer, say. Because this interest in getting an answer actually undermines the authenticity, as it were, of the questioning itself. Can we be satisfied just to rest in this questioning, in this puzzlement, in this perplexity, but in a deeply focused and embodied way? So that would be waiting. Just learning how to wait without expectation. We're not waiting for something, we're just waiting. I found that idea helpful. Maybe you will too. But going hand in hand with this quality of waiting is also, I feel, a quality of listening. Now I realize at the beginning of the retreat, Martine introduced this idea of listening. Um, I find it a very valuable metaphor for the meditative Uh, practice, meditative awareness in itself, whatever form of practice we're doing. But I'd like to think of it not just in terms of listening to the rooks in the trees or the sounds in the room or the, the sort of the quiet hush of silence, but rather to acknowledge that when we meditate, we cannot but to some degree, describe that process by drawing on the metaphors of sensory experience. And again, I'll just give you a simple example. The word vipassana. Pasana, pasati in Pali means to see with the eyes. And if you think about it, a lot of the instructions in meditation that are given are assuming the suitability, even the preeminence, of an ocular metaphor. For example, we're told to watch the breath. But of course we're not really watching the breath because we've got our eyes closed. Or we're told to look into the mind. We're told to see what's coming up in our experience. See, look at, watch. All of this is ocular. In other words, 
to do something in our inner experience that is compared to what we do when we look at something or watch something or see something. Now this is the language that you find very much in the Pali text too. Uh, the Buddha uses these dasati, pasati, see, look, all the time. So it certainly has you know, a, a role to play. But I feel that, as is often the case with Zen, or Son, um, there's a, a tendency to, um, to disrupt or to question guiding assumptions. So rather than watching or looking or seeing, you often find in the Son writings that one should listen or hear rather than watch and see. So just think about it for a moment. What is the difference between these two sensory modalities? When you are asked to watch something carefully, what do you do? You tend to um, narrow the focus of your attention to a single point in order that you can somehow look more carefully at what it is that you're seeing. And again, what it is you're seeing is almost invariably something outside of yourself, over there somewhere. So I think what happens um, in meditation is that we, we fail to acknowledge the metaphoric uh, language that we're using, and we just quite unconsciously adopt um, a stance inwardly that is a kind of a mirror or a sort of a, a simulacrum of visual seeing. And this might feel, for example, as though when you're meditating, you feel that there's a bit of you in the back of your head somewhere that's looking in on your body and breath and your physical experience. You've, you've somehow created a distance uh, as a, of an observer peering in on an observer. But if you think about listening or hearing, it's completely the other way around. You don't focus in on a particular sound, or in most instances you don't, but you open yourself up to allow the sound to enter you. So for example, if you're playing a piece of music on your, on your iPhone or your stereo system or whatever, just notice what you tend to do. You tend to, often you dim the lights or you close your eyes and you often raise the sound so that it encompasses you and you open yourself up to allow yourself, uh, in a way, to be transparent to the sounds that then enter you from all quarters. So the internal posture you assume is not that of a detached observer looking into something, but rather an, a completely vulnerable and open attention that allows uh, sounds, in this case, to stream into you from all directions. Now that's a very, very different uh, posture physical posture is the same, but the, the inner or mental posture is the opposite. 
There's a passage in a late Chinese sutra called the Surangama Sutra, which is often cited in Zen literature, in which the Buddha asks the assembly, assembled audience, um, what is the most effective way to enter into the stream of meditation? And as is the nature of these rather tedious texts, you have to go through page upon page upon page of wrong answers before you get to the fellow who's at the end of the line who's got the right answer. And in this case, the fellow at the end of the line is, uh, is Guan Yin, or Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And the Bodhisattva of Compassion answers the most effective way to enter into the stream of meditation is through the organ of hearing through the organ of hearing. So that, I think, is one of the sort of the, the source texts of this that somehow gives a, a foundation for this sort of approach. But when you ask yourself, what is this? Um, in a way, after the question has been posed and the sounds have already gone, you, as it were, listen for some kind of response. Again, it's a waiting kind of listening, so you're not expecting a particular response, but you're, the way that you open yourself to the possibility of a response is through attending to what is arising in the moment in a similar way as you would attend to the presence of sound through the ears. So it's a kind of receptivity, a kind of openness, and also a kind of attunement, but a different kind of attunement to when you look carefully or watch carefully. This, I mean, what's remarkable about this open attention of listening is that you can be just as concentrated and focused as you might be when you're directing your visual consciousness onto a particular point. In fact, for many people, the experience of listening to music is often one of the ways that they find themselves most concentrated and present. And I find that, to be honest, uh, that music can allow us to really become deeply still within ourselves in a pretty contemplative sort of way. It's a kind of meditation in itself. And it's not just a passive hearing of sounds. As we train ourselves to, um, uh, to appreciate music, it becomes increasingly more refined and subtle and uh, complex. Um, the, there's something very deeply... Um, uh, um, how do you say, something very deeply moving and enriching the more we listen to even the same piece of music. And I think in some ways this metaphor of listening to music is a way in which we can learn to attend to the sounds, the natural sounds around us all the time, to think of that in some of the ways that John Cage and others thought of it, as the music of the world, as the polyphony of life. And, and actually spending time just enjoying the polyphony of life itself. 
But the other connection that comes with listening, and it's already implicit in the figure of Avalokiteshvara or Guan Yin, is that this is associated with the quality of compassion or the quality of empathy. Um, Avalokiteshvara, which, I mean, weirdly, that it went through a sort of a, a transition. Um, Avalokiteshvara lit, 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 literally means the lord of the world, which is a very pa patriarchal kind of idea. In Tibetan, when they translated it, it became Chenrezi, Chenrezi, or Chenrezi, as it's pronounced in English. And that literally means the one whose eyes look down. Eyes, Chen, Mik, eyes look down. When it got translated into Chinese, it became guan yin, which means the one who observes sounds. And this is usually interpreted as the one who hears the cries of the world. So sounds here is not just you know, neutral noises, but in listening and in hearing, we also become more attuned to the suffering of life. We hear the cries of the world, not literally, people moaning in despair. But, but it's, it is, I think, a, 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 a widely used metaphor that the, the, the compassionate, the empathetic person, um, you know, you get people like Bill Clinton saying, you know, I hear you. <laughs> I, in other words, I can, I'm somehow sensitized to what you're saying. And you may not be saying this in words, but you express your concerns in a way that I can really hear what it is that is troubling you, for example. So the, uh, the other transformation that occurred in China is that Avalokiteshvara changed from being a male figure into a female figure. In fact, in the um, foyer, by the notice board there, there's a picture of a female bodhisattva, a, a scroll uh, of a female bodhisattva sitting on a lotus in a pond. That is Guan, that is Guan Yin. That, that is Avalokiteshvara, who has become a woman. So there's something here, too, that went on in China. And again, Zen and has its origins in this culture, whereby what started out as um, a male figure, maybe even a male quality who looks down benevolently on the world, becomes a woman who is open to hearing the sounds or the cries of the world. And I think metaphorically we shift from looking at to opening two quite different stances vis-a-vis -vis the world. So my sense is that this um, quality of listening, which I think is very helpful as a way of attending to um, whatever response might arise to the question, what is this? When you hear that question, you allow yourself to then be open to what, whatever might come up, without expectation, but your attention 
is that of listening rather than looking. You're waiting to hear something rather than looking for an answer. Again, pay attention to these metaphors. Looking for an answer. Or trying to see the nature of reality or something. So you might find it helpful today just to explore what it feels like in your body and in your meditation to be open in the same way that you would be open to hearing a piece of music or hearing the polyphony of the rooks and the birds and the occasional plane that flies over and the patter of rain on the windows. So to enter into a more listening mode and at the same time recognize how that listening is also not just an opening of the mind but an opening of the heart, an opening of a concern or a care for the world that is in a sense the, the source of what we call compassion or love or care um, that brings us into a world of relationships and that's the world we're going to be returning to tomorrow. So this might be a way of just, uh, uh, as it were, turning this practice a little bit more in the direction of, of what is to come. Uh, to the wider world, of which we are, of course, still very much a part. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.